Well, several years ago, I took a trip to Emmaus Bible College in Dubuque, Iowa. It was in February, which is not a great time to go to Dubuque, I'll tell you. I was there for a conference. I was actually representing the seminary where I graduated from. And the conference lasted from Monday through Wednesday. And it was a good time. uh, But as the conference wrapped up, it was Wednesday afternoon and about lunchtime or so. And my thought was, I think I can get all the way home. If I get on the road, I can plow through. What I didn't know was that the weather was not exactly going to cooperate with my plan. Now, it had already snowed, of course, but the afternoon saw a major change in the weather. The wind was blowing hard, the snow was coming down fast, and it was, it was ugly conditions for driving it. In fact, I don't think I've ever driven in worse conditions personally. Now, the, with the wind blowing and snow drifting all over the place, you really couldn't tell where the highway was and where the shoulder was. And so everybody's creeping along. And just to kind of reinforce how dangerous the conditions were, as I'm driving, there's cars in the ditch here and there and everywhere. We're creeping along the highway. It's getting darker now because it's later and later in the day. And I'm a little worried. Number one, I'm not sure I'm going to make it home tonight. Number two, I'm trying to pay attention to what's going on around me because I don't want to end up like some of these other cars I've seen. Well, sure enough, this big tractor trailer comes out in front of me, and he starts to sort of slide on the snow, and I'm right behind him. So I'm trying not to get clipped by this tractor trailer that's going off in the ditch. Well, in the process, I end up basically in the ditch. And everybody who's been in this situation knows exactly the emotions here because as I'm stuck there in the ditch, The tires are just spinning. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, no. Here I am in the middle of nowhere in Iowa um, on a night like this. If I'm really stuck, it's going to take a wrecker forever to get to me. Who knows how long I'm going to be sitting here. And this dreadful feeling of, oh, I'm stuck. Well, needless to say, I didn't make it home that night. But there is sort of a happy end to that story. Because after about 10 minutes of trying and praying Eventually, I was able to turn my wheels in such a way that it picked up some traction, and I was able to sort of launch back onto the highway and make it further down the road. But I think it provides a good metaphor, not just for cars, but for life itself. In fact, we use that phrase sometimes. Somebody is spinning their tires, spinning their wheels. It means that you're not going anywhere. It means you're stuck or uh, just not moving forward. Now, it doesn't mean that somebody is idle or inactive either. In fact, the very act of spinning your tires is a pretty active thing. I think that's a good metaphor for a lot of people, is that in spinning your tires, it doesn't mean we're just sitting there. It just means that we're doing a lot of things. We're just not moving forward. To use another similar but uh, different metaphor, think of it like a hamster wheel. The hamster runs and runs and runs. In fact, he runs till he wears himself out, but at the end, He's exactly where he started, in the same exact position. Again, a good metaphor for how life is sometimes. Going round and round, but as soon as you stop, you're in the same place. And people can sometimes get stuck, spinning the tires of their life in education or job or marriage or family or even in church. But the Bible teaches that believers should be making forward progress toward godliness. In a word, we should be growing. And the main idea that comes to us through our passage this morning here in Philippians 3 
is that the Christian life is not static, nor is it stuck in the past, but is progressing towards greater godliness, humility, and love. Christian life is neither static nor stuck in the past, but progressing towards greater godliness, love, and humility. We see that here in Philippians 3, where the Bible picks up sort of an athletic metaphor, that of running, which is a common one in the Bible for the Christian life. But unfortunately, far too many Christians get stuck spinning their tires in a ditch somewhere. Rather than growing in maturity, they're mourning over some unfortunate past. Or perhaps they're locked in anxious gridlock over the uncertain future. Well, perhaps to some degree, this might describe us at times. I know it's described my life at times where I'm simply spinning the tires. I'm not really growing. In fact, spiritually, I'm static. Your relationship with the Lord feels dry. Growth in faith is at a halt. But spinning your tires is not a metaphor for what the Christian life should be. It shouldn't be static or stuck in the past. It should be moving forward. That's why I want to look this morning at Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. Now, last Sunday, if you were here, we talked about the holy discontent. That unsettled desire that rings in the heart of a believer. We're never quite satisfied with just knowing about God or knowing about Christ. We want to know him. Paul is so clear in the previous verses, verses 7 through 10, well, 7 through 11, that his desire, which is constantly unmet, is to know Christ more, to know him more deeply. Well, that idea of holy discontent continues here in this passage because it's not just knowing Christ. But we should also have a sort of holy discontent about our Christian lives. We never have this sense that we finally made it to the, the pinnacle. We're done growing. I'm there. Instead, we ought to always be progressing, moving towards greater godliness. John R.W. Stott, in one of his books, The Christian Basics, writes this. Do not be content with a static Christian life. Determine rather to grow in faith and love, in knowledge and holiness. So if our desire this morning is not to be static or stuck in the past, but if we're to be making progress in Christian living, how do we do that? Maybe if you're in that position, you say, I feel a little stuck. I feel like I'm spinning my tires. I'm not really growing as a Christian. Well, how do you break free? How do you find traction so that you can get back on the road? Well, I think this passage provides us some suggestions, some ideas to think about. And I want to present four of them to you right here. How to pursue godliness. Well, first, I think we have to recognize you have not arrived. I think this is an enemy to the idea of growth. Thinking that, oh, I've made it. I've arrived. The previous section had all been about pursuing Christ and knowing him. Now the emphasis is pursuing Christ-likeness. So verse 12, I think, is an honest admission, one that we should make if we're to pursue godliness. We've not arrived. Now, each of us has a long way to go. I think we would probably recognize that. The sense, in that sense, we should arrive at this holy discontent. It's not a smug satisfaction. That's what happens when somebody thinks, oh, I'm there. Smug satisfaction, not holy discontent. Let's look at verse 12. The Bible says, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. 
So reading this verse, if you think to yourself, I'm a pretty good Christian. I, I, you know, I'm a pretty good model of what it looks like to be a good follower of Jesus. Well, then chances are you're probably not thinking about yourself the same way Paul thought about himself. Because Paul, for all of his maturity and his godliness, says here, I've not arrived. Look what he says, verse 12. For I have not already attained, or not that I have already attained. Now, again, this verse is extending the discussion from the previous ones. He's talked about knowing Christ, and he's talked particularly at the end of verse 11, attaining the resurrection. That would be the ultimate knowing Christ, right? When you're raised to new life and you're with him personally. But then he says in verse 12, not that I have already attained or obtained. Well, what? Obtained what, Paul? He doesn't specify here, but if we go back, what does the last verse end with? The resurrection. The resurrection is when we will be perfected and made in the likeness of Christ, and we will reflect him as we never have before. But he says, I'm not there yet. I haven't reached the resurrected state. I haven't reached heaven and absolute holiness as I will be there. I'm not there yet. I still have a long way to go, Paul is saying. Since he's not in heaven and since he hasn't been conformed to the death of Jesus and his resurrection, he's still growing. He's still learning. He doesn't think that he's reached some kind of plateau on which he can sit down and pat himself on the back. Instead, Paul sees himself looking up at the peak saying, I've I've got a long way before I make it. He says, not that I've already obtained. I I haven't made it yet. I haven't reached that state of perfection. And then he says, in the next phrase, nor am I already perfected. I'm not perfect yet. Now, now this Greek word perfect is the w- word telos or telos. And it means perfect, but it can also indicate reaching a goal. Sometimes it's even translated maturity or fullness. So Paul is basically saying another way to translate this would be I am not already mature or fully mature. It's Again, the idea here is not mainly about perfection, although that is true. He hasn't reached a state of perfection yet either. Neither have you, by the way. All of us have a ways to go. All of us have more maturing to do. We're not already perfected, just as Paul says here. And this is Paul we're talking about, remember? I mean, if you wanted to point to a mature Christian, uh, someone who really gets it, Paul would seem like an obvious choice, and yet even he is saying, listen, I'm not there. I'm not there. I'm not already perfected. I'm not already fully mature. I haven't attained. Instead, he says, verse uh, verse 12, I press on. In other words, I I keep working at it. I keep desiring it. I keep pressing into and, and toward godliness. I'm not there. I haven't reached it. That's why I'm pushing. That's why I'm pressing. Now, I'll say more about that phrase, pressing on, in just a few moments. But basically, he says, because Christ has saved us, we should never be satisfied with just the status quo. Instead, desiring more. It's this idea we haven't reached perfection. Now, in the year 1741, the preacher John Wesley preached a sermon from Philippians 3, verse 12, our very passage here in front of us. And he entitled his message, Christian Perfection. And in it, he taught and argued that Christians, in some ways, are imperfect, yet they could become perfect in this life. That you could reach a level of sinless perfection. 
Now, that eventually became the doctrine that was embraced by Wesleyan uh, holiness movement and still is around today. There's still those who teach Wesley's doctrine of Christian perfection. And it was really a milestone. But there's one slight problem, I think, with his message, and that is it actually contradicts the passage that he was talking about. Because here it's not that we reach a state of perfection and we never sin again, or that we can be totally free from sin. In fact, Paul is saying the opposite. Listen, I'm not there. I've not reached perfection. That's the very point. He's got more maturing to do. I I saw once a little sign that I think captures this well. And it was like one of these kitchen signs or you can hang it up in your house. And it said, work in progress. God is not through with me yet. That's pretty much what Paul is getting at here. Listen, we are all a work in progress. We've not arrived. We've not pulled into the station. We still have more maturing and more growing to do. So if if we're going to make progress, we've got to realize there's progress to be made. We're not at the mountaintop yet. We're down at the base. We've got some climbing to do. We need to be making progress in the Christian life. I read a story this week of a famous Greek artist from ancient times. And as he was training under a very well-known instructor and tutor, he began to produce some really exquisite paintings. And one portrait in particular, he was so excited about, so happy about the way it turned out, he, he set it up, pleased with himself, and just looked at it. For, for almost a couple of days, he didn't do any more work. Instead, he just kept looking at the picture, feeling proud and feeling like, wow, look at, look at what I can do. His instructor, however, his tutor, realized that it was a great painting, but he could do better. And the fact that he thought that he had apparently thought that he had reached the pinnacle of his artistic abilities was keeping him from trying harder. So one day, the young Greek artist came into his studio and he found that his instructor had ruined his painting. He was distraught. He was upset. Of course, he, he questioned him. Why did you ruin my masterpiece? The wise man replied, I did it for your own good. The painting was retarding your progress. It was an excellent piece of art, but it was not perfect. Start again and see if you can do it even better. That artist became better, having learned this lesson. You've not arrived yet. We need to be reminded, like Paul was, we've not arrived. How else, though, does this passage help us towards this godliness? I think we need to also learn this lesson. Don't get stuck in the past. Don't get stuck in the past. I think this is one of the things that most sets Christians back from making progress is by getting bogged down, this morbid, improper fixation on the past. Now, on the other hand, we can't erase the past or pretend it didn't happen. Okay, I'm not saying we just ignore the past, but I think we need to learn not to live in the past. Remember it, yes. In fact, there's a lot of lessons and valuable things to be learned from the past, even our own past experiences. But sometimes our past becomes a a stumbling block for moving forward. You've probably seen this all too often, where people, because of past experiences, are afraid, afraid to try new things, afraid to move forward, afraid that they may again get hurt. 
or seen people who, because of past experiences or past trauma, are, are constantly, rather than making forward progress in their life, are actually going backwards. Paul expresses it like this, verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, same thought as the previous verse. I haven't arrived yet. I haven't laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Paul is saying, I haven't grabbed hold of it yet. I'm still straining. I'm still striving. I'm still reaching for what's ahead. But to do that, I've got to forget about the past. Again, not completely forget, but rather choose to focus on the future and not get stuck reliving the past. Now, starting in the previous verse, verse 12, he already said, I'm going to press on, right? I'm going to press on to lay hold of Christ. Well, he hasn't grabbed hold yet. He hasn't got there, but he's pressing on. That means moving forward, not back, right? If you're pressing on towards something, that means you're going forward, not backwards. You're not in reverse. And the whole image here of press on in verse 13 uh, where he says, reaching forward for those things which are ahead. These are athletic metaphors, right? He's picturing a runner. And there's one thing about runners and running that is clear. You're not sitting still, and you're not living in the past. You are moving forward, pressing on. Now, the warning here in verse 13 is several fold. He says, we should forget those things which are behind. No one runs in reverse, and neither can you live the Christian life in reverse. One author says it like this. God did not design the Christian life to be lived looking backwards. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean we live for the moment or that our memory should extend no longer than the past few moments. But again, it does mean that we ought to move forward in our life. The problem is we become shackled with the past. It becomes sort of a ball and chain to Christian growth and progress. So what do we need to forget? Or what does it even mean to forget those things which are behind? Well, I think it means, first of all, forgetting failures. Forgetting failures. This is often something I think that people get hung up on. You know, if you were to glance back at your own past, you think about your experiences in your life, there's been a lot of failures, haven't there? You've not always been successful. You've not always had things go right. There's failures. All of us have that. Some are big. Some are small. However, failures become a problem when they interrupt our lives moving forward. You know, we want to learn from our mistakes, our failures. We want to learn from the past. But if we are controlled by it, that's a different thing altogether. And that's what happens. People become fixated on their failures and shortcomings. They think to themselves, how can God use me when I messed up like that? How can God use me because of that experience I had? How can God use me when I've done such and such? And basically it becomes an excuse for not serving and not growing. Uh, it's it's kind of like a child who falls off her bike when she's learning to ride. And because of that one bad experience, she's not going to get up on the seat again. She's not going to try harder. She's not going to learn. And so, really, her past gets in the way of her moving forward and learning something new and valuable that she could use. 
that's what it's like when we allow our past and past failures to sort of hold us back. So don't give up. People who get stuck in the past become paralyzed by it, and Paul wasn't. You know, he could have looked back and said, you know, I persecuted the church. I was a bad person. I was a, a Pharisee. How could God use me? You know, woe is me, and had that attitude. He doesn't, though. In fact, he says, I'm, I'm forgetting those things behind. I'm looking ahead. I'm looking to what's to come, I'm not stuck in the past. Now, I think we ought to realize this, and this is an important point to make. When we talk about forgetting failures, we have to realize there is forgiveness. Because yes, we do sin. And yes, we make huge mistakes. Yes, we hurt others. Yes, it's all true. But the God who forgives is able to forgive your past mistakes and failures. And that is what gives us the ability to move past them. If we were constantly living with the weight of our failures and our sins, there would be no progress. There would be no hope of progress. But the forgiveness of God wipes clean that record so that we can move forward. So we need to begin by forgetting failures, but also by overlooking successes. When you think about looking to the past, oftentimes we think about all those failures. But you know what else can be an impediment to forward progress? Is constantly living in past successes. Looking back to the glory days, thinking it was always better then. Well, probably what Paul has in mind whenever he says, forgetting those things which are behind in verse 13, is that stuff he just mentioned back in verses 5 and 6. You know, he talked about his whole his whole experience of being a Hebrew of Hebrews and, uh, you know, according to the law, blameless. Those were all successes in his book, at least until he met Christ and counted them as lost. Those were the things that were his past. He says, if I had lived and kept holding on to those things and saying to myself, I'm a pretty good person, look at all my record, then I would never have met Christ. I would never have come to understand my sinfulness. See, Sometimes past successes can also be, can get in the way of Christian growth and progress. Uh, it's just as much a temptation to think of the past, of past success as it is past failure. Uh, ask any business person that if a businessman becomes fixated on some past success, he's going to try and imitate that rather than be creative and looking to the future and new developments. Instead, he's always sort of thinking about, oh, it was, it was so much better then. Now, for the believer, I think we, we don't look at the past success in life and use that as sort of a crutch. In other words, you know, I look back and say, well, I had a great prayer life, or I, had, I was really reading my Bible daily at that time. Instead, what are we doing now? You know, what about growth and progress? Instead of living in the past and riding on past success. Not only that, we need to, number three, neglect nostalgia. You know, nostalgia is the sentimental looking back, longing for earlier times. The myth of the greener grass, right? It was better then. And I think this also stands in the way sometimes of growth and progress. Thinking that, well, it was better back then. And, and it may have been, okay? I, I admit there are some things that uh, look better, certainly. But if we live for that, and if we allow that to sort of stand in the way of us making forward progress, then it becomes a problem. You know, many a church has been derailed 
by people who have said, you know, we've never done it that way before, or we've always done it this way. Not able to make progress, right, because they're stuck in the past. Now, there's always wisdom, I think, in looking at how things have been done in the past. But nostalgia for earlier times does not lend itself to growth. In fact, sometimes it can work against it. So don't get stuck in the past. There are a few things that cause Christians to, and the Christian life to screech to a halt, to cause our, our tires to spin than living in the past. Reminded of one of the Roman gods. There's a god named Janus. He is the one for which our month of January is named. Depictions of the Roman god Janus had two faces, one facing forward to the future, one always facing back to the past. And that's where January gets its name, you know, looking back to the previous year, looking forward to the new year. And I think sometimes, sometimes we adopt that same idea. We're always keeping, in fact, we're holding ourselves back by, with the one face, always looking to the past, always, always sort of shackled to it. Again, past and remembering things is good, but when we become living in the past, that's not. So if we're going to make progress, I think we need to recognize we've not arrived. And we, we also ought to keep ourselves from getting stuck in the past. Third, though, keep your gaze on the goal. Keep your gaze on the goal. This seems fairly obvious with the athletic images already used, right? Not only does Paul say in verse 13, forgetting what's behind, he says, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Verse 14, I press toward the goal. For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Not only am I forgetting what's behind, I'm pressing on, he says, reaching forward. Rather than being stuck in the past or thinking that he's already achieved perfection, he says believers should go at it with diligence toward the goal of the Christian life, which is Christ-likeness, godliness. What does he mean to, to reach for those things which are, be, are ahead? Well, interesting, the word reaching here in verse 13 has the idea of straining or even stretching towards something. It's going hard after the goal, pressing on. Uh, the picture here is really of a runner. Maybe you've noticed this. You know, I've watched in the Olympics when they come around, the track and field and the different, you know, 200-meter, 400-meter, all those different races. And one thing that you always tend to see is that these runners – they're all kind of right there with one another because they're the best runners in the world. And right as they come towards the finish line, they'll do this move where they lunge forward like this. And usually their arms are back and their head is pushed out in front. And it always kind of looked weird to me. Like, why don't you just run normally right across the line? But this move called the dip is puts a person and it extends their body forward. Because when you cross the line, it's when your torso goes across the line. Not when your foot does or when your head does. It's when your torso crosses the finish line, you're the winner. If you have two people right next to each other, the difference can be .0001 second difference between when one crosses and the other. So the dip is just a little bit of a lunge forward just to put an extra .001 second ahead of the person next to me. I think that's kind of what Paul's describing here whenever he says stretching or uh, reaching toward those things which are ahead. He's lunging out. He's, he's after those, this goal so hard that he wants to achieve, just like a runner. 
pressing on, pursuing. In fact, those words to press on in verse 14, he says, I press on towards the goal, is actually the word elsewhere translated persecute. That's interesting. Well, this, this word means to go after something hard. Like in, in the case of persecution, it means to chase someone or something down. Well, here he's chasing down the prize. The, the same energy and the same passion he had to exterminate the church, he now puts towards chasing down the prize, winning the race, going after the goal. His eye is on the prize, as we say. He says here, what's the point, though? Where is he headed? He says, I press on toward the goal. The goal, the end, the finish line, if you will. You know, when we talk about goals, or sometimes people will talk about life goals, usually they're talking about bank accounts and vacations and retirements, 401ks and all that. But Paul's goal here is more important. It's more than money. In his commentary on Philippians, Stephen Davey points out that the prize for a victorious athlete in Athens during the time of Paul was 500 pieces of gold, free meals, and a front row seat at the theater. Not too bad of a prize. But Paul's point is not, I'm pressing on towards the goal of a good retirement. I'm not pressing on towards the goal of you know, financial wealth and stability. His goal is the upward call, this call of the Lord. Now, this upward call is not just Paul's way of saying like a high calling. I'm pressing on for this high calling that God has given me. It's actually the call which is a call to come up, an upward call. This is the call of the believer to heaven. Um, David Garland points out this. The call comes at the end of the race, not at the beginning. The upward call would refer to the summons of a winner to approach the judge's elevated stand and receive his prize. So what he has pictured here, if you can... Think of it this way if it's helpful. Verse 14 says, I press on to the goal of the prize. What he's saying, the goal of the prize, the upward call, is I'm pressing on to the finish line. The finish line is heaven itself. Because that's when we reach the place where our growth climaxes. That's where we get to the point of the peak of the mountain. Because that's the finish line. That's where our eyes will be fixed. We're making progress towards godliness but we got to keep in mind the goal, heaven itself. You know, it's often said that being so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Well, that's not what Paul believed. Being so heavenly minded doesn't make us no earthly good. It makes us press on toward godliness, toward Christ likeness. So keep your gaze on the goal. Fourth, though, we're instructed here to live what you have learned. Live what you have learned. And this may be one of the most important parts of this whole discussion. Let's read together verses 15 and 16. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree we have attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. So God expects us, listen to this, God expects us to put into practice what we know. Now, simultaneously, learning and growing as we go. We, we're always learning. We're always growing. 
So we're adding to what we know, but God always expects us to live what we know of his word. Now, I think it's possible for someone to get distracted from making progress in life by thinking, well, I don't know enough of the Bible, you know. I, how, do, how do you expect me to serve? How do you expect me to move? I just don't know enough of the Bible. Well, rather than moving forward in our lives and applying more of Scripture every day, we're stuck thinking, hey, I just need to know more. Or worse, sometimes we can think that learning the truth is the same as practicing it. It's not. We can know a lot of the truth and not live it out. Here's what I want to, this is what I want to highlight with these two verses, 15 and 16. You don't need to be a biblical scholar or to be able to put together all the pieces of the Bible in order to put into practice what you know. Just take what you've got and start living it. Yeah, you don't, you don't know how Leviticus fix, fits into the whole picture of the Bible. And there's some parts of Ezekiel that you have a hard time figuring out. And, you know, that's fine. To be honest, I don't know everything, right? I mean, there's a lot of the Bible, and there's parts of the Bible, certainly, that are mysterious to me. But we live what we know. And along the way, hopefully, we're going to learn some more. But live what you know. That seems to be what Paul is, is saying here. Look at the verse, beginning of verse 15. Let us, he says, therefore let us. This is sometimes called a hortatory subjunctive. It's basically a command. He's commanding them along with himself. Let us. Let's, let's all do this together, basically is what he's saying. Well, what are we supposed to do? Well, he says, have the same mind, right? As many as are mature, have this mind. Well, he wants here to talk about the attitude of the mature. That's what we see come out in verse 15, the attitude of the mature. It says, as many as are mature. In other words, uh, in some versions we'll hear, we'll say as many as are perfect. It's that same word, telos. So as many as are mature, as many as are perfect. He's not saying those who have finally reached heaven's goal. He's saying as many of you as are mature, that is, are, are seeing this like I am. That's, I think that's what he's hinting at here. As many as you as are mature and, and are able to sort of see the value in pursuing Christ, see the value in growth, and you're, you're trying to grow and you're pressing on, you're not getting stuck in the past, you are putting in practice what you know. As many as are mature, he says, have this mind. Again, we have to ask the question, well, what mind is he talking about? Well, I think it's the same mind that he has that, that puts a value on knowing Christ, on wanting to be like him, on pressing forward. Fact is, there are some in the Philippian church who might not be of that mindset. You know, these are the, the people who, they may be believers in Christ, but they're living more for the paycheck. They're living more for the next vacation. They're not pressing on to know Christ. They're not running this race with endurance and with gusto. Instead, they're stuck in the past or, or static, spinning their tires. And so that's why there's a need to learn. Not only do we have the attitude of the mature, which is basically what Paul has been describing for the last 10 verses or so, there's also this need to learn or need for learning. And it's right here. He says in the end of verse 15, if there's any of you who think otherwise, in other words, there's any who haven't kind of come around to Paul's mindset here, who are instead living for this present age and not for the age to come. Notice what he says to them. If you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. What's he talking about here? Let me try and explain what, what he's saying. 
there's anyone who doesn't see life the way Paul is talked about here. He's saying, it's interesting, Paul doesn't say to them that, well, you know, if, if you have a different opinion, well, that's fine. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. Don't worry about it. He doesn't say that. He believes that this is how the Christian life ought to be lived. He's not looking for alternative opinions. But at the same time, he also doesn't give them a long lecture and beat them over the head with truth. He just says, if you have a different opinion, you'll come around. (laughs) Basically, God will teach you. God will have to open your eyes to see this. Now, God may use Paul's words. Paul may use, or God may use the church body. God may use the scriptures themselves. God may use any number of different means to do that. But Paul says, listen, if you're not on the same page with me on, on all what we've just talked about, living for Christ and, and serving him wholeheartedly, then God will teach you too. God will reveal that to you in his time. Here's the, here's the admonition that we ought to learn from this. All of us need to be teachable. Because, frankly, some of us are not going to have the biblical mindset like we ought to. Let's be teachable. Because you know what? God does open eyes. He does reveal things to us in his word that we need to be learning, that we need to know. Finally, though, there's the response of maturity. So verse 16 is very short, and my version is a little bit wordy, but some have kind of condensed it down and made it a little more straightforward. Mine says, nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Say, okay, well, what does he mean by that? Well, like I said, other versions have sort of uh, reduced some of the wordiness, but keep the essence of what it's saying. The ESV, for instance, says, let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, to the level of maturity that you've reached, live it out. To the level of learning that you've reached, live it out. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to know all of the Bible, but whatever you, whatever level you're at, if you're a, you know, level five Christian, well, live out your faith as you can. Always Hoping and praying, and you know, we want to be moving forward and growing. So eventually we're a level 10 Christian. But wherever you are, he says, live it out. Don't just wish that you were at the next stage or, or wish that you were at the previous stage. Just keep growing and keep living what you know. Practice what you're learning. As much knowledge and as much maturity as you've achieved, practice it. Rather than becoming sponges that just absorb more and more teaching but never actually do anything with the knowledge, we should put to practice what we know. read a story which I don't know how true it is, but uh, there was a story of a businessman, big city businessman who, um, you know, kind of a a loud, boisterous type person, you know, didn't really seem to have much uh, character, we'll say it that way. Anyways, he told Mark Twain one time, and he said, one of the things I want to do before I die is I want to climb to the top of Mount Sinai, and I want to read the Ten Commandments out loud. I think that would be awesome. And Mark Twain said, I have a better idea. Why don't you just stay home in Boston and keep the Ten Commandments? Well, such it is that instead of just knowing the Ten Commandments, that's great, but let's live it out. Let's live them. You know, live the word of God. Whatever you've attained. Throughout the Bible, we encounter this thought. Greater knowledge produces greater responsibility. The more you know, the more God holds you accountable to practice. Again, 
It's frequently credited to Mark Twain, who said, it's not the things I do not understand the Bible which trouble me, it's the things I do understand. You see, the more you understand, the more we're obligated to carry it out. And if we don't, then we're really being unfaithful stewards. Those who have been given much, much will be required. You've heard it said sometimes, practice what you preach. Let me rephrase that a little bit. Practice what you know. All of us have knowledge of the scriptures. Some. Doesn't have to be complete or perfect knowledge. We have some. Well, live it. If you want to make progress as a believer, this is what it is. Live out what you know. Practice what it is. What you have. The Christian life can become stagnant if there's no outworking, if we're not doing anything with the knowledge that we have. So the question I want to close with today is, are you progressing toward godliness? Are we growing? Or are we stuck in the ditch, spinning our tires, not going anywhere in particular? Christian life is not meant to be static or stuck in the past, but progressing towards greater godliness, humility, and love. I want to close with three thoughts. I don't have a lot to say about these, but I just want them to ring in your ears, and I want you to hear them. Number one, it's never too early to start growing. Don't put it off tomorrow and say, well, you know, this is, this is good stuff, Reed, but no, start putting things into practice today. Live it out. You know, maybe, maybe the problem is that you feel like I've been stuck in the past. Or maybe the problem is that, you know, I have sort of had this, I have been feeling pretty good about myself and feeling like, I've reached a, a good plateau, and I'm ready to sort of sit down. No, it's never too early to start. Wherever you are, make it your aim to, to really have this same attitude, the same mindset that Paul had here. I've not already attained. I've got a long ways to go, and I want to keep pressing on. I want to keep getting one step closer to that finish line and hearing well done. It's never too early to start growing. Number two, you're never too old to, to st start moving forward. You're never too old to start moving forward. Again, no matter where you are in life, sometimes there can be this feeling of, well, too many wasted years. And I would suggest that that attitude is essentially being stuck in the past. That wherever you are, no matter how many ups and downs and valleys and hills you've been through, that you're never too old to start making progress. Make it your goal today to press on to that high calling, the upward call of Christ. Putting into practice even what we've learned this morning. You're never too old to start moving forward. And number three, it's always too soon to quit. It's always too soon to quit. Again, what is quitting? It's sitting down. The Bible says that the Christian life is to be prog progressing, moving forward. Like we sang earlier, nearer, still nearer, always desiring to know Christ more, pressing on towards the goal. So when do we quit? When is the Christian life, when can we finally sit down and, and rest? When, when do we stop pressing on? The answer is when we reach the finish line, when that upward call of Christ is complete. Later on in the same chapter, it says this in verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working which he is able even to subdue all things in himself. That's the finish line. 
when we see Christ and our bodies are transformed to be like his, our mission is accomplished. The goal is achieved. In the meantime, let's press on toward that goal in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I think of my own life, and I think of times that, frankly, I've been spinning my wheels in my Christian life. Just too many other distractions, too many other things that crowd out what I ought to be doing. By reading the Bible is sometimes cast to the side, and faithfulness in prayer is sometimes dried up, Lord. And those are times I'm not proud of, but, Father, Perhaps they're there to humble me and remind me that I'm not there yet. Lord, I, th I pray for our whole church that there may be some who feel like they're spinning their wheels. They're not really moving ahead in their Christian life. Maybe, maybe their Bible reading has been cast to the side and just feeling dried up. Father, I pray that today we might have a renewed heart to press on toward the goal. That we may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to the likeness of his death, that in some way we might achieve the resurrection from the dead. And this I pray in Jesus' precious name.